Did you know the average fleet manager spends 100 hours a month managing toll? Get that time back by partnering with BestPass, the nation's leader in toll management. Learn more and visit bestpass.com or call 866-366-1426. Welcome to Taking the Higher Road, a Driver Reach and Freight Waves production. I'm your host, Jeremy Raymer, founder and CEO of Driver Reach, a modern recruiting and retention platform. On this show, I interview industry experts and thought leaders who bring their insights to the driver lifecycle as we discuss the industry's greatest challenges, driver recruiting and retention. I appreciate all the feedback we've received on the show so far. Please keep it coming. And uh, please remember to rate and review Taking the Higher Road on whatever platform you use to listen. I'm honored to be welcoming back one of my favorite innovative people in the industry, a leader in technology who's helped transform how we collect and analyze data, Steve Bryan, CEO of BlueWire. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Great to see you. Oh, great to be here, Jeremy. Really, really honored to be back again. We we were just talking a moment ago. We think it's been about a year since I've been on the show with you, and I just got man, that's been a fast year. But I'm delighted to be back. Well, I'm I'm excited to uh, hear how Blue Wire is doing, and uh, maybe you can share exactly what Blue Wire does for those who may not know. Um, there's a movement afoot. You know, hopefully you can uh, share about the white hat movement and, and the effort to overcome reptile theory. Maybe explain what reptile theory is. Certainly something that appears to be a big factor in ever-increasing uh, settlements and verdicts. And perhaps you can share what engaging with Blue Wire is like, how that works, how uh, Blue Wire is different than other safety scorecards. And then, of course, uh, I also want to make sure we have time to take a question submitted by a listener during our Deeper Dive segment. Does that all work for you? Yeah, that sounds good. That's a lot That's a lot to go over. But yeah, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> you know, what's fun is when I, a lot of times when I uh, watch something that's recorded, I always listen to it at one and a half speed or two speed, just because it's so much more efficient, you know? And so <laughs> anyway, people that, uh, we can't talk at that speed, unfortunately, or, or especially if you try to listen to it later, it's like chipmunks. But let's, uh, let's start at the top. So around a year ago, as you said, uh, you and I connected right here on taking the high road to discuss what you were building with Blue Wire. Yeah. Um, I was on the road and, and conducted a show from my uh, from a hotel remote studio. And a year later, here we that. are. I'm back. Yes, I remember. Yes. <laughs> I'm back in my home studio now, and and anxious to catch up. So, for the few who may not be familiar with Blue Wire, can you you know tell us what problems you're solving uh, for carriers and for the industry? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't I don't kid myself that everybody knows. So I don't don't feel bad if you don't know. But yeah, Blue Wire. Blue Wire is actually the effort's about two years old now. So uh, uh, we started Blue Wire in the fall of uh, 2020 in a kind of an R&D mode. And what we were what we were looking at was whether or not we believed that we could create a new kind of data platform populated with data that would be meaningful in the fight against the rising. Uh, occurrence of these runaway verdicts, the so-called nuclear verdicts, uh, specifically driven by the the theory, the legal theory that the trial lawyers have adopted and have gotten very good at that they call the reptile theory. So it is, it is that's really what we set out to do with Blue Wire. Blue Wire, of course, uh, the name came from the idea that uh, in every action movie ever made, at the end, the hero cuts the blue wire to stop the nuclear bomb. So that's where we came up with the blue wire name. So that's what we set out to do two years ago. Uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we uh, we decided that we had come up with a plan that made sense. So we announced and kind of launched the company, started hiring people. And now we're 
about a year since we, I guess, became a real company of having employees and things like that equates to a real company. And then just this past March, we released our product and have been offering that to direct to motor carriers and also through insurance channels and even some uh, some legal channels that we've started to develop that are pretty interesting. So uh, this far, you know, about a year or so, you know, you launched earlier this year officially with the with the platform, you're, you know, a couple of years in the works. Um, what are you seeing maybe as the biggest challenge or, or challenges to overcoming reptile theory? Well, there's, yeah, there's, there's obviously our opponents. Um, I sometimes I call them the enemy, but maybe that's, uh, maybe that's too strong a word. I have my own opinions, but I'll call them our opponents on the trial lawyer side, the, the plaintiff's attorneys who invented this. They invented the reptile theory. It goes back to a book that was released in 2009. that basically was a how-to guide for using uh, data uh, to inflame juries to get their emotions high, which is which is the essence of the reptile theory. It is it is a, a concept that in the old brain, the old reptile brain that lives somewhere in all of our heads, we are motivated by emotion, by self preservation, and those kinds of instinct for you know it's fight or flight kind of thing. So uh, they've gotten very good at it. They've written a book. They hold workshops and sessions at conferences. And they teach themselves how to sue trucking companies using these emotion-fueled arguments. Um, and that is that essentially is the reptile theory, and that's what we're here to combat. So you actually uh, have a pin. I, I, if I was wearing up my lapel, uh, you know, a jacket with a lapel, a little pin that you even highlight, you know, sort of a little lizard kind of, you know, evoking that reptile theory, yeah. uh, you know, conversation. Yeah, we've got kind of the little kind of the little Ghostbusters idea with a little lizard in it, you know, no reptiles. Yeah. So, um, and you've got a white hat there um, over your shoulder. Let's let's talk about the white hat movement. When when I first saw you, the first event this year, uh, March, I believe, TCA conference, uh, uh, your whole team, you know, a fantastic group of people, by the way, that you've assembled. Uh, you all had big white Stetson hats on, and uh, it was really easy to see you in the crowd. And, uh, and I thought a great way to identify with what you're doing in the industry. And, and when I was a kid, I always remembered, you know, the good guys were the ones, uh, you know, wearing the white hat. I think of the Lone Ranger. And I love that show. So um, you were all in yeah, white hats. Yeah. And the message it says is, you know, hey, those are the good guys. What was the inspiration That's right. behind the, the white hats and the white yeah. movement? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, we all I think you all think of white hats as you like you say, Jeremy, we're the good guys. But specifically, we we kind of borrowed this concept from cybersecurity, where uh, in in the cybersecurity realm, companies get hacked by bad guys. They hack their securities and firewalls, and they get into their databases and steal credit cards and social security numbers and things like that by hacking into corporate uh, online properties. Right. So uh, in that world, companies can hire what's called a white hat hacker. And there are, it's a huge industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry where companies can hire people. Many of them are reformed hackers. Some of them even did prison time for it. And now they work in service of the companies to help them identify the vulnerabilities and the gaps that they have in their various security protocols so that before the bad guys come hacking, uh, you are prepared to resist them the best that you can. And that's called a white hat hacker. So that that uh, that model we thought really resonated with what we're doing. The bad guys are the trial lawyers, and they are coming. 
And they are also looking for vulnerabilities that are very well-defined. This is what the reptile theory is all about. They know exactly what to look for. They're highly trained, highly motivated. And our job as the white hat trial lawyers, essentially, is to help you, motor carriers, insurance companies, understand ahead of time, where are you vulnerable? When they come hacking, what are they looking for? And we think we know very well what those what those sets of data uh, and elements look like, and we will help you prepare in advance to defend yourself better uh, when they come when they come hacking around. That's where the white hat comes from. Well, that's that's scary because, as you said, they're very well trained. Um, they 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 do workshops on this, the enemy or the opponent, as you as you describe them, and uh, certainly they are more experienced and knowledgeable than most of us in the industry. And so to your point, they know exactly where to go, exactly where to look. And um, maybe if you could, you know, dive into the weeds a little about uh, about how Blue Wire works. You know, I, I know it's a subscription model. Um, you've got an army of allies. I'm honored uh, that Driver Reach is one of them. Can you share a little about, you know, what type of uh, data, you know, Blue Wire is collecting to assist in that effort? And uh, just, you know, how does it how does it work? Yeah, good question, Jeremy. So, so when we studied this, this was that first year or so of R and D we did, and we were we had the great fortune of having uh, other folks who were also doing a lot of research into this. Groups like Atri that did a really excellent report in uh, the summer of 2020 on this, and they helped they helped to give us a bit of a, a roadmap as to where to go in our own research. Looked at hundreds of these cases, and what we found pretty quickly as you tease these things apart, you find it's very repeatable. Like, like there's groups out there. Uh, one I'd point you to if you don't follow them, I would suggest you bookmark this in your browser is the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys. Uh, it's got the uh, easy to remember URL of Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys.org. So uh, type that into your browser, bookmark it, and watch what they're doing. I think there are others out there. But uh, these folks are very focused on this, very specific to the trucking industry, and they will hold workshops, boot camps, et cetera, to teach new attorneys or new to trucking, how do I do this? How do I go extract huge value out of trucking companies? That's their, you know, that's my version of their mission statement. I think they stated in other ways. Here's an interesting stat for you, Jeremy. I looked this up before we got on here today. There are approximately, according to the American Bar Association, there are approximately 46,000 new attorneys every year that enter, that enter looking for uh, working in, in some area of the law. So not all of them, but the, when, you, when you look around and see where could I make a lot of money as, an, as a new lawyer, of course, you've probably lots of answers to that question. We've become one of them. We are one of the answers to that question. The trucking industry will pay you very, very well as a plaintiff's attorney if you'll just go learn what this data means, where to get it, how to collect it, and then how to spin it into this reptile story to inflame these jurors. It's not rocket science. It's not that hard. So the data, coming back to your question, the data we're collecting and evaluating comes from Data gathered at roadside inspections by our friends at the FMCSA. It comes from other DOT sources. We look at things like judicial hell holes, the particularly friendly venues around the country 
to to the plaintiffs. You know, they'll bend rules, they'll relax rules, they'll let evidence in, things like that. So we look at data from from that's collected by the government on trucking. We look at data on from the courtrooms. Uh, we look at data from your own back office op- applications like your ELD platforms, your driver training platforms, DQ files, hiring practices. So there's a category. We look at about 10 different categories of data, not because we think that's where they're going to come, because we've proven that's where the trial lawyers will come. It's over and over and over again. They keep looking at the same thing. If they can find things like patterns of hours of service violations that are not addressed, patterns of hiring practices that are not as tight as they should be, DQ files that are still on paper and back in a green file cabinet that are not complete. That is just red meat for the trial lawyers. They can spin that into these narratives, these stories about what a terrible trucking company you are because you don't attend to the basic uh, safety and compliance requirements that are that are imposed upon you. So that's the data we're looking for. And is that is those are the sorts of things that it's I remember when we spoke last, you talked about, you know, a fatality, for example. It's it's not that crash that leads to this incredibly high verdict or, or judgment, right? It's that's the door that crashes the door that opens all of that inspection, kind of to your point, and all these. That's exactly right. And so, yeah. That's exactly right. And it can be a crash. Of course, you know, we do have far too many fatality crashes in in this industry. It is one of the most dangerous industries in the United States. Um, The the latest numbers are still over 5,000 fatalities a year, you know, in truck-involved crashes. Now, the trial lawyers would spin that into every single one of them as your fault, should have been avoided. We all know, you know, depending on which research you look at, but, you know, 70 to 80 percent of those are the fault of the other driver, not of the truck driver. But it doesn't matter. It is now an opportunity, that event, that recorded crash, whether it's an injury, fatality, uh, or even just property damage, that's an event that trial lawyers can use to open that door, to come in and start snooping around in discovery to find all that data that is collected about you as a trucking company. And it's all discoverable. They can get at all of it. There's nothing you can keep hidden. Uh, that's one of so back to your question about challenges. The challenges is the sophistication and the training and the education that our opponents are engaged in. But there's a challenge on our own side, and that is overconfidence, fear, and denial. I talk to way too many motor carriers in this industry that believe, Steve, they're never going to get through my data. They're never going to find it. They're, I'm never going to share it with them. I can protect it. That is incorrect. You will, that data will be discoverable and there's nothing you can keep it, uh, do to keep it private. Um, and overconfidence, I'm great, I'm fantastic, go ahead, let them in, they'll find nothing in my data. That is also almost always wrong. There is always something they can find that will start to peel this onion back and tell a story that they want to tell, not the authentic story about all the things you do as a motor carrier to keep safe, is still find one little chink in the armor and they'll pry at it, pry at it, pry at it. And the juries don't know. They don't know this industry. They don't understand the billions of dollars we spend on safety technology and other services. All they see is the chink in the armor pried apart by these very highly skilled trial lawyers. So on our own side, the self-inflicted wound of overconfidence and denial, fear, 
I think I'm afraid. I don't want to know this about myself. It's like, hey, I've invented a new kind of a, a scan for cancer. Um, would you like to take this scan? Like, oh, no, I, I don't want to do that because I'm afraid I might have right. it. That's a very, very poor argument. So that we run into those are the things I think we run into on the industry side is uh, self-inflicted wounds of fear, denial and overconfidence. Yeah. All human, you know, basic yeah. human characteristics, flaws. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Human traits. Safety uh, and I myself know that I'm perfect on all yeah, sides. Sure. I mean, I don't yeah, you and I both. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, safety and compliance are, are, you know, critical areas of focus now, especially in like uh, uh, the spotlight that's on these uh, ever increasing verdicts. What makes Blue Wire different, you know, maybe versus other safety related, you know, scorecards of companies that are uh, in this space? Sure. Yeah, good question. And we do have some of the best uh, best safety scorecarding companies are also our allies. As you mentioned, those are very important to us. Again, just I'll, I'll come back to your specific question about the data we collect. But the concept of these allies is so critical to this movement, as you described. You know, we, we think of ourselves, uh, think of Blue Wire as the physician. We are looking at all kinds of data. We're doing your blood work and your blood pressure and putting all kinds of gauges and things on you and looking at your overall health. And when we find an issue, we send you to a specialist. We are going to point you to somebody who can fix that specific problem. And that's the that's the that's how important these allies such as such as Driver Reach are to us, because we can't fix the problems. We can diagnose them very well. But that's where we think this movement is so important with these allies. We've got to pull everybody together. So back to the data, the data we're looking at again uh I like we have a little saying here that we look at KPIs, not APIs. So an API, of course, is like a vacuum cleaner, right? It's 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 sucking in huge volumes of data into these machine learning and predictive analytics and AI tools. And think about these this huge volume of data that's pulling from all these different platforms that we have in this industry. And that's very valuable. There's a lot you can do with that kind of predicting predictive analytics down at those very deep levels. It's important that you you have some of that in place. We don't do that. That is not what we do. We think of us as more like looking at KPIs, key performance indicators. We're looking at things like, what's your crash rate versus the industry? What is your rate of driver out of service violations? How many uh, unassigned hours? How many personal conveyance hours? Uh, what is the percentage of completion on your DQ files? We're looking at those kinds of high-level KPIs. It's a very different way of looking at you as a corporation, as an entity, and it is from those KPIs that we evaluate. We're not doing predictive analytics about where your next crash is going to come from. We are evaluating the likelihood that you've got vulnerabilities specifically to the reptile theory that are going to be used against you. Yeah, vulnerabilities. That's a, a, a well yeah. said. Good point. Um, might be a good uh, opportunity to take a segue into our deeper dive question. Uh, this is where we take a question from a listener seeking expert advice, and 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 I chose this question mainly because it referenced lawsuits. But the question is: We are interested in reducing the minimum driver age from twenty-one to eighteen, uh, but how is 
let's say, but how is that even possible with all the lawsuits we keep hearing about? So I, I, I don't know if you and I, I don't think that we've really talked much about this whole, you know, effort to reduce the minimum age and certainly to address the driver shortage challenges that we have. How do you reconcile that with, you know, A, you know, on increasing uh, insurance, you know, rates and maybe a lack of interest from the insurance um sector to to even insure younger drivers but that with uh with lawsuits any any insight that you might have there boy yeah i let's see i'll 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 preface that with i'm not an expert on driver staffing or hiring or qualification or anything else i'm just i i, I look at data um my own personal uh, opinion is that we have at the age of 18 an awful lot of things that you're now considered an adult and you can do, you know, I, I have a son who served, uh, you know, in the middle East and he started, he was there on his 18th birthday. So I, I sort of am a believer in that argument that at 18, you should be the right kind of people should perhaps have the opportunity to, to drive trucks. I don't see any problem with that, but I do see that as an opportunity. It's another vulnerability that, you know, these trial lawyers will exploit. They will look at that and say, you're hiring children. You know, these have, they have no experience. They haven't done this. They haven't done that. They can't possibly have any years of experience. You can hear them. You know they're going to come and do that. So, but does that mean you shouldn't do it? No. If we listen to every one of their arguments, we would not have a trucking industry. We have to do what we have to do. So, you know, I don't know that I would say I'm an expert in that category, but I am a believer in the fact that we ought to be giving our young people uh, some of the opportunities that are available in this fantastic industry. Yeah, I, and I share that uh, same sentiment. Um, I think training is key, just like your your son and the reference there. Nobody just handed him a rifle and said, just go get them. I think there was a lot of training that took place, and that's sort of the justification, in my opinion, that uh, that helps make that the argument for um, reducing that minimum age from 21 to 18. I am curious, uh, again, this, I know it's all unfolding as, you know, in real time here, but what do you, what's next for Blue Wire? You know, a year from now, two years from now, what do you, what's the vision? How does that, how does it expand from here? Well, our vision has always been in a, in a way, our vision is to put ourselves out of business. Um, you know, if we are successful, you know, look, go back to 2008. The term nuclear verdict didn't exist. No one had no one said that um, the reptile book came out in 2009. And then, you know, studies like Atri show us these nuclear verdicts just started skyrocketing very shortly after that. This is a new phenomenon. If we're successful, we harden the target as an industry and these quite lazy, quite frankly, trial lawyers, go look somewhere else. They'll go back to medical malpractice, slip and fall, product liability, everything else, you know, that they can think of. I, I was down at the gym this morning. I saw an ad come up and they were, it was a call from, from lawyers looking for soldiers that had had drinking water at a certain Marine camp, you know, back in the fifties. And they, they're now claiming that the water quality was such that you probably have all these bad diseases. Call us and we'll help you sue the Marine Corps, I guess. I don't know. So, you know, there's no shortage of places they will go looking for their paydays. Uh, we have to harden the target and get back to, I say, let's get, let's get back to 2008, where we didn't have this particular problem. Sure, we had lawsuits and, yes, some claims were paid out, but we didn't have the, in, the 
the size and the frequency of these insane runaway verdicts that we're facing these days. So end game for Blue Wire is we chase these guys back into the industries that uh, that aren't as hard to target as we can be. Well, hopefully, hopefully there's opportunity for us to continue to to have this sort of uh, engagement and dialogue. I, I want to make sure I'm helping in that effort. I think anytime we're not letting the trucking industry be the easy prey that they have been, um, it's it's something that it's easy to rally behind and, and, and support. So thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Always great to catch up. Exciting to, uh, to work for you as you help reverse this trend. And uh, look well, forward to thank seeing you, you Jeremy. in person again soon with the white hat, I hope. You bet. Absolutely. Well, we're coming into the fall season. We'll all be out at the trade shows and the conferences. It'll be a busy time. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Taking the High Road and for spreading the word to your industry peers. We really appreciate it. Remember, you can submit any questions or comments, including those which may appear on our upcoming Deeper Dive segments at podcast at driverreach.com. And don't forget to rate and review Taking the High Road, whatever platform you use to listen. Until next time, thank you for taking the high road.